You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson, and my dear friend, Sarah Raven. In this episode, after us being locked up and locked down for almost a year and a half, we're going to be taking flight, literally, across the country and talking about all of our favourite places, namely gardens and also places that have got connections to plants that we're longing to visit this year. So, Sarah... Have you got petrol in that big purple van? Because we're going to go on a nice road trip. <laughs> That'd be nice <laughs> with a mattress in the back. <laughs> Actually, I have slept in the van once. And it was absolutely <laughs> freezing. I didn't expect it to be quite as cold as it was. But anyway, can I do one for starters, which I'm afraid yeah, is... Yeah, you, um, you, you're the driver, so you can decide where we're going. Okay, I, well, our first port of call is quite nearby. And it is Sissinghurst, which I know in a way is rather an obvious choice, but... I was there, and so I have actually been last night, and it was looking so unbelievably beautiful. And in this sort of late summer, really, I mean, it's just been so late, hasn't it? Things like Ami Magus and the white corn cockle were all coming out in the white garden. The white rose is just not yet opening, but will be by the time this episode goes out, I think. (laughs) And the rose garden just absolutely about to burst open with all those beautiful scents. So for me, my first port of call would definitely be a good one or two hour walk around the garden at Sissinghurst. Mm. How long have you known the garden at Sissinghurst, Sarah? Well, um, it's a good question. I'm married to Adam Nicholson, who was partly brought up there. And we actually moved there when Nigel Nicholson, Adam's dad, died, Mm. when the children were really quite small. And we were there for eight years and we lived there. And obviously that sounds as if that would be the most wonderful thing. But of course, if you're a gardener and you can't really garden in a way in in a, um, I mean, it's someone else's garden because of course it's owned by the National Trust. That makes you have quite yeah. an odd relationship with it. So to be honest, I, I think I almost prefer the relationship I have with it now, which is where I can go and visit and just wander around. And it's got that incredible mix of being in the most beautiful place with those incredibly beautiful red brick, Tudor red brick buildings with those tiny red bricks and all those the most delicate mortar between the bricks. So all the walls and the Mm. tower are just exquisitely beautiful. And it's got the mix of that and the shapes that they make for the gardens, which is, again, is just fantastic, with uh, a really unbelievably romantic and wonderful mix of plants within those walls and a looseness, which uh, the National Trust and the gardening team there are very much sort of returning to, which feels more, in a way, amateur, even though, of course, it isn't, but more informal, almost like Vita wrote about, where she loved the idea where the a rose was not so heavily pruned, it might catch your hair as you walk past. Mm. And I, I just felt it, it's at that perfect moment right now where 
where you you really feel that. And the other thing that Vita wrote about, which was so noticeable last night, is because she was massively obsessed with roses, particularly the moss types, which are those ones that have all those, almost like a fur of thorns. But she trained them into domes. And she always says that you you need minarets to go at the corner of your domes. So you need vertical spires to balance the design of the plants of the roses. And I think that's such a brilliantly true thing. And last night it was being done by the lovely Sutton's apricot foxglove. So these great spires of foxglove and these domes of roses just about to burst into flower, it felt like near perfection, really. I I remember visiting Sissinghurst first time. I hadn't met you by then, but I'd done um, an antique show with my dad, Nick, at Wakehurst um, and the deal was for doing it it was a three-day event where we were shoving around you plant tables (laughs) and I was probably only 15 but anyway the deal was um, we could go to Sissinghurst on the way back somehow but we're in this huge great blue van full of furniture that we hadn't sold so it was in a real bad temper (laughs) and I think actually it was the first week of the garden opening because it was definitely spring before the tulips but anyway it was funny because he'd lost his National Trust membership card so we had a funny altercation on the gate trying to get into Sissinghurst. Oh, did um, you? But anyway, it was so beautiful. And um, I actually think any all the training courses should have a course bit in the training of romance. And I think yes. Vita's work should be properly part of any garden course. Because I think a lot of gardeners leave courses. And if anything, the romance has almost left them because they're so worried about Latin names and, and lawnmowers. That's what I felt like when I left uh, my garden training. Yeah. yeah. So I think really um, there should be a Vita Sapwell West part of all the garden courses. I think that'd be very helpful for all these gardens, historic ones in particular. That's such a nice idea. That's such a nice idea. Yeah. And um, I know both you and I are very much of the, the Vita advocates of her phrase, cram, cram, every chink yes. and cranny. <laughs> certainly are. And uh, and last night, you know, there was a Ridgeron all the way through over the steps. So even the paths and the steps are crammed with plants and the walls were absolutely bursting with uh, roses. And there's a beautiful shrub on on the first wall as you come into the top courtyard, uh, which is called Indigophora pendula. And uh, it's the most exquisite plant that is so light and lacy. It's trained almost like a a lace curtain over a window but it just gives this perfect amount of discreet sort of privacy for inside but yet it's so it's so delicate it doesn't cut out the light at all anyway so and the walls are crammed and of course all the borders are crammed and particularly at the moment uh, there's tons of sweet rocket hesperus matronalis and all the foxgloves but yeah for me first on our road trip would undoubtedly be a visit to Sissinghurst. So where next, Arthur? You can choose the next one. Well, we'll, we'll stick with um, gardens, actually. And, and actually, the, the next garden is also owned and managed by the National Trust, but it's a lot smaller than Sissinghurst. And I've never been. It's um, Beatrix Potter's garden at Hilltop in the Lake District. I've seen it on so many documentaries. And so that would be my my number one place that I haven't gone to that I'd like to go to. Um, namely, because when I was little, it took me ages to read and I used to read the Beatrix Potter books and I used to try and read them through the the beautiful paintings that she did which were often of you know farm animals in this beautiful cottage garden 
And I think she was kind of an advocate, really, of of romantic, loose planting that involved animals and a bit of eccentricity. So Hilltop's got a vegetable garden still and a beautiful cottage garden. I think it's one of the smallest gardens that the Trust manage. Mm. I don't know if you've been. Well, my aunt used to live near there, actually. And so I went maybe when I was eight or nine. So I have very distant memories of it but it's in the most beautiful part of the world it's quite a drive by the way Arthur <laughs> and yeah. as, as you're not a driver so that that's quite a hop yeah but I get the train and organize a taxi <laughs> that's I thought, how we I, do it I thought we were in the purple van <laughs> <laughs> well we do drive quite away in that purple van with these venues you book <laughs> we do but anyway so I'm driving from Kent to um to Cumbria <laughs> but that's all right and uh, yeah, so the the reason I remember it is just in is in those that perfect bit of the lakes, I think, where you mm. just get these beautiful um, hills called fells, I think, <laughs> and then all the valleys are so wooded and it's full of oaks and 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 beautiful um, indigenous mm. British trees, and it just feels so lush. And at this time of year, it would be absolutely a fantastic place to visit. You know that that is the nucleus. The Beatrix Potter Garden is the nucleus, but in in this ex- really exquisitely beautiful part of the world. So I think that's definitely a good one for the roadmap. And as I haven't been for nearly 50 years and uh, you've never been, we must definitely add that one on. So then um, sticking with the idea of gardens with animals in some way, I think I would definitely come back south again to another garden and then we'll move off gardens perhaps but which would be to Rousham and Rousham of course at the moment is rather in the news because In Pursuit of Love which lots of us have been watching on telly was filmed there and you and I visited recently and I'd love to know what you felt about it but the main thing I know that that excited you was their incredible hens yeah, I had to be dragged into the garden from um, the entrance because they've got the most beautiful flock of um, a bantam breed called a millfleur-booted bantam. And they are called millfleur because it's the name for a thousand flowers and their feathers are a mahogany and then flecked with white and black and buff browns. And they, they live at the entrance and they dust bath all day long under the yew hedges and peck about the gravel. And I was quite pleased because the Pursuit of Love, which was on a few weeks ago, written by Nancy Mitford, it had them in the background. So I was glad about that because that's a very Mitford thing to have to have hens um, pecking around. And I just love the the feeling of the whole garden being just beautifully wild, and they're not precious like a lot of gardens would be frightened to have hens pecking around for you know dirty boots and that kind of thing. It's quite a unique feeling when you get out of the car there. It feels like you you've stepped back in time, and that's what makes it precious for me. Yeah, it is. It's got the most, well, like the places we love, really, but a very gently gardened feel, isn't it? You mm. uh, you know, I, I feel there's lots of really lovely self-seeding and things are pruned really beautifully, but are not over pruned. And the grass is studded with um, incredible buttercups at the moment, but also mm. just lots of yellow rattle and and all the different clovers and it, yeah, it just uh, it feels very magical. And of course, there is the, the the reason it's it's in a way very famous as a garden is it's got that William Kent rill, which I think was sort of seventeen forty ish that he he put that in, 
I'm, I hope I've got that right. <laughs> um, but in a way, that's the sort of iconic image of the Rajan Garden. But I think both you and I loved the wall garden almost more because it, it has this very loose but beautiful, productive, you know, there's cut flowers. For me, there was loads of veg. And I, I love those wonderful herbs, uh, really Yeah, beautiful. the herbs were incredible, weren't they? Like tapestries yeah. of just mosaic of marjoram and chives and parsley, all just, it felt like someone literally had just scattered the seed packets. And of course, you know, they're managed. But I, I just love that. And even me, who, of course, famously isn't a veg person, I, I couldn't help but be impressed by this huge kale cage, which I think you wrote about a few years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. They've got yeah. in there. And it's all made from natural materials. And um, I really loved the way they trained their sweet peas. So we do them here on silver birch or perhaps hazel, almost like straight stakes and then jute netting. But they'd done them like the most beautiful tapestry of hazel. So they'd cut, they'd harvested hazel, I guess, as the sap was rising in January and February and then made this, this wonderful avenue a really, really delicate, like sort of almost filigree sort of ironwork, really. I, I thought it was mm. so architectural, even with, yeah. you know, the sweet peas then were still, when you and I were there, which is two or three weeks ago, were still quite small. But even mm. without that, it had such beautiful architectural presence. I thought it was um, yeah, really, it really, reminded magical. me of um, pastry across a cherry pie cake. Yes. Uh, the way they plattered it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I think we're both left going, oh, we must must try that. <laughs> yeah. don't know how long it took them to do. It's easily a day's work doing that, but worth it. I think it's the thing, isn't it, where you feel that the hand of man very lightly, you know it's there, but it's sort of, I don't know, it's not like um, lawns moan to within an inch of their existence. Everything there is, you feel it is managed, and but the combinations are just so beautifully put together mm. and then and then sort of maintained. And I, I know one of the other things that, that makes me smile and makes you laugh is um, is the signs. Why don't you tell everyone about the signs as you come in? To... <laughs> well, I, I, I do like dogs in, in their place, but um, lately I find a lot of dogs off leads. And, of course, the hens at Roushima Free Range, and um, I think there was an issue with, dog urine on the box at one point so it was made the decision was made for there to be no dogs and no children under the age of 15 and um again it's a very sort of uncle you can imagine uncle matthew of the mitfords pulling a sign like that out can't you yeah for, forbidding any chaos or drama to preserve the garden and they, they've done it at Rousham, and i think you know, I love a gift shop, but I'm so glad there isn't a gift shop there. That you, you know, there's nowhere to buy postcards. It's literally two toilets, a ticket machine, and and you're in. Yeah. And I, I just again, it's it's just the feeling of an uncommercialization of a place, and that that's very rare. Yeah. And so there's an art to that, and they they've just got it so right. Yeah. And a lot of people would say, oh, it's absolutely awful that children and dogs aren't allowed in, but it just preserves the feeling of you being in someone's private garden really as opposed to you know just being somewhere that's an open garden for of, of the modern world i think it's yeah. it's quirky and precious and um the other thing that i think is precious is that they have these great collections so when you and i were mm. there it was tulip time and they had these 
amazing ranks, sort of tiered up like in a theater of different beautiful, beautiful tulips. And then I've been there in August where they have this this hugely long, I mean, 50 foot, 60 foot long dahlia bed. And in a way, again, I, I rather love the varieties that they have there. It's absolutely not sort of changing with fashion. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't think you'd find cafe au lait in the, in the Rousham dahlia bed. God. You know, it's not, it's not an Instagram <laughs> follower of fashion. You know, what they have is they, they've stored the tubers, you know, over decades mm. and they lift them and put them in the cellar or one of the barns there, I think. And they mm. put them back and uh, again, year on year, they do lift them actually, but, um, oh, do they? it's just an extraordinary, you stand at one end of that bed and you just look, you know, right off into the distance and it's still these unbelievable, some of them quite brassy dahlias and mm. quite a lot of bicolors and stuff. And, and that is, um, that's gardening as theater more than, more than anything else. I think it's, it's really inspiring. So it's, it's in Oxfordshire. And uh, if any of you haven't been, I think both Arthur and I would passionately recommend Rousham. Yeah, I, I want to go back when the foxgloves are out yes. in amongst the roses, which I think is the most brilliant thing to do, actually, foxgloves yeah. and roses. Why not? Yeah, just like Vita. Um, so mm. that's just near the dovecote. So over to you for the next one, Arthur, I think. I think it's your turn on our road trip. Well, again, I'm afraid the miles are going to have to be put in by you if you're driving because we're going to the midlands now <laughs> so um we can't leave off chatsworth really can we it's a place that both of you and i really love and we've known for a long time i've known it since childhood and i know you've you've gone there a lot too in I particular the part of chatsworth that i love because it's such a great large estate but the intimate part that i love the most is the kitchen and and cutting garden which I've known since I was little, really, um, because I used to go there. And when Deborah Devonshire was alive, she used to have her hens, again, chickens, free-ranging in that part of the garden. And um, it's a sloping garden. It faces out, looking out onto the Derbyshire Dales. And it's the most productive place I've ever been to, really, for vegetables grown in a beautiful way. There's these brick beds which are raised, and in each, the middle of each is an apple tree surrounded by artichokes and from that are rivers of chard and leeks and broccoli and all companion planting and um, most recently the past couple of years the the cut flower movement there has really gained momentum with them becky crowley mainly at the helm of that and i think you went last year didn't you sarah i did i did no i i like you i absolutely adore the kitchen garden at chatsworth and try and go at least once a year for inspiration. I mean, of course, it's in the most exquisite part of Derbyshire, and there is this incredible new garden developed with uh, Stoker and the Devonshires and Thomas Stuart Smith. But I always head straight to the productive bit first. And I love all the same plants as Becky. I mean, she's not there right now, but um, that she's sort of influenced and so it, it, incredible dahlias, historic peonies, actually, the peony beds there, which will be coming into peak, beautiful condition right now. So, you know, we should all, we should all be rushing to see the peonies. And it's quite, I think it is quite a historic collection that have just been built up over the last five or six decades, I think. 
And some new varieties, you know, like Sarah Bernhardt, which is a famous cut flower variety, but some really old ones, um, some of which they don't even know what they are, but they're beautiful, real kind of magenta singles and some dark reds and stuff. It's, it's, it's really extraordinary. And then, you know, absolute dahlias, a go-go, roses, lots and lots and lots of roses for picking. And experimentation, that's what's exciting, is whenever you go, rather like the garden here, and what I feel proud of here is trialing new varieties. Whenever you go, there's there's new things on trial. And they use the greenhouses, which is such a wonderful thing to see, because, of course, lots of people are quite intimidated by having those great Victorian greenhouses. But from early in the year with anemone, the huge coronarias, and then through to ranunculus in May, and then right the way through to exquisite, extraordinary, stellar-like chrysanthemums for late in the year, and tuberoses to give that wonderful, wonderful polyanthus tuberosa, that wonderful, wonderful perfume. So I, I love that feeling of the history with the idea that all this stuff is still going into the house to the family and going down to London to the family and this sort of wonderful productive machine it still goes with the incredible muscat grapes as well, of course, which which they have a whole grape house just to grow those unbelievably delicious grapes. So it's an absolute must visit. But you need a whole day for Chatsworth, don't you, at least? Yeah, yeah, easily, definitely. Because there's so many different elements to that place. I mean, the shops, to be honest, are, are the largest gift shops of any state lame I've been to. So you like shopping give yourself a good hour for the shops because you've got the farm shop and then the stable block and also I think walking just I always get the bus I get normally get the train from Nottingham get off at Matlock and then there's a bus the 217 just outside the Marks and Spencers <laughs> and I love getting that bus because I feel like um, youth injuvenated very quickly because everyone else on the bus normally is between 70 and 100 years old <laughs> so I, I do like my little day trip to Chatsworth and the bus drivers know me because quite often on the way back I've got a box containing chickens yeah from the farmyard (laughs) or I'm taking chickens to the farmyard because the farmyard which is quite nice because the farmyard's next door to um, the kitchen garden so you can be wandering around the kitchen garden and you'll often hear the donkeys or the cows or the chickens and so it just feels like you're very much in a, a country garden and I just think that it's a constantly invigorating garden because with each dukedom there's new elements of the garden being added so arcadia which is tom stuart smith and dan pearson they've they've planted massive areas under the trees which were just grassland and i i went before lockdown it must have been late autumn and it it literally felt like you'd fallen down the, the alice in wonderland rabbit hole with these huge seas of perennials all merging into each other persicaria so so many things that I'd never seen before en masse. Just a complete Persian carpet and the light coming down through the these ancient trees onto all these perennials was, was absolutely stunning. So it's an exciting time to, to go to Chatsworth because there's always something new. And there's because it's such a large garden, they can afford to have different areas coming into their peak at, at different times. So um, the lupins are out en masse at this time of year, huge great beds of them. And then if you go in the autumn around the maze there's like tropical temperate garden there's a huge maze that used to be in the footprint of one of joseph paxson's great conservatories 
And so they plant bananas there and cannas and mix them with babinas and salvias and dahlias. And the planting really is is incredible. And I always feel happy to go there. So it's one of the places I go to to feel invigorated about life. Um, so it's very precious. So I'd recommend a, a weekend in Derbyshire to anybody. Yeah, yeah, and I would. And, and walking through the park is, it's also just, it's it's perfection, isn't it? Yeah. So my last one is actually not a garden at all, but it's a wildflower walk. And it's down in Cornwall. And I think I'd probably join the coast path at Kynance Cove and I'd walk to the lizard. Now, that sounds quite lazy because I think it's only two or three miles, but <laughs> it's unbelievably wonderful for either a morning, perhaps, or a sort of afternoon into the evening with a beautiful, beautiful light and incredible sort of mix and abundance of wildflowers. And so, you know, there are rarities, which I'm not necessarily so interested in, but so there's there's wild asparagus there, which is now so rare, of course. But then there's thrift at this time of year. So just incredible pink carpets as far as you can see. And it's just the variation of, I mean, there's big tree mallows. So there's sort of exotic, almost like Cornish, tropically things. But then there are beautiful, exquisite, tiny things like great, huge anthills of thyme, of wild thyme. And, and of course, orchids and you know, depending on, the, on on when you're there, but you, you walk and you just feel like you're walking through a flowery salad and the grass is quite short because of course, some of the ground is quite impoverished, but it's just, ah, it's bliss. And you've got the blue of the, the sort of aqua blue of the sea as you walk to, to one side and then just this incredible sward of color of wildflowers um, on the other side. And Again, I, I couldn't more passionately recommend it. And so, you know, camp or find a pub or find a posh hotel, however you want to do it. But head there in the month of June and uh, or early July and you're in for a major, major treat. So that would be the final. But I have to say on our geography, I don't think either of us were very good at old joggers at school. <laughs> I think we've, we've taken a rather mad route around the United Kingdom. <laughs> and actually having said exactly about the United Kingdom, I've realised that we haven't mentioned any in Scotland. So I've got to cheat and add another one before perhaps, I don't know if you want any more. Well, well, we'll stay in England, then we can go to Scotland, which shamefully I've never been to Scotland. Oh, okay. So can, <laughs> am I allowed to go to Scotland? You can go to Scotland now, then we'll have to come back to England. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, fine. It's a mad yeah. trip. So I'm going yeah. to the Outer Hebrides now. And so again, <laughs> just carrying on with the wildflower travels and walks, I would go to the Macher, so the the westernmost point of any of those westernmost islands. So whether it's Barra or North or South Uist or Lewis, I would definitely want to head. And you go right to the coral sands, the Macher, the white sands, outermost rim of the British Isles and walk along there. And the, the sand that the flowers grow in, then mixing in with the peak gives this ex- extraordinary richness of flora which uh, there's every orchid pretty much that you can imagine that sort of orchids that are incredibly rare in in England in most parts you know like the frog orchid and the man orchid and all these different orchids you just find you can't put your foot down without treading on them so that would be my final one and then you take us back to England Arthur and then we must stop (laughs) well my final place involves um, me tasting the most delicious fig 
I've ever tasted in my life. And bizarrely, it was outside an orangutan enclosure at Chester Zoo. Did you steal the fig, Arthur? Well, it was it was asking to be eaten. <laughs> I don't think people realised they were edible. But the problem was, I was probably a bit drunk because me and Zoe and Amanda, we used to, my friends, we used to live live in Stoke on Trent, and we used to go to the zoo for a treat because there's a beautiful. It's a huge zoo, very very well funded, and um, so in the zoo there's a beautiful pub, and the zoo produces its own gin from banana leaves and all oh. botanicals grown in the. The glass houses there. So um, we used to go to Chester Zoo and, and get drunk on the gin and then we'd walk around. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a good day out. Yeah, and I love proper zoos. Um, Chester's the largest zoo in the UK and it's part of um, all international breeding programmes for endangered species. So everything kept at the zoo is is endangered and part of worldwide conservation. They also fund huge conservation projects in the wild for all the animals that they keep. So it really is a special place. And um, they've got a huge glass house, which is like a Bornean rainforest where the orangutans live and hornbills and all Mm. kinds of most beautiful exotic birds. And you really do feel, I think for children especially, that you're in a rainforest. They've Mm. got like cloud misters that come on and it's so big and so vast. You honestly don't feel that you're in a, you know, the typical zoo of, of seeing animals behind bars. They've got such large planted enclosures. You really do think the animals are are fairly content and the breeding records show that they are, you know, happy enough to breed. So there's always baby monkeys and um, they do very well with their Rothschild giraffes, which um, are critically endangered. And they they grow huge amounts of feed for the animals on site. There's huge arable fields that have been turned into these eucalyptus groves and willow groves. Gosh, sounds incredible. Because all these species need their own forage. You can't just give a giraffe or a gibbon a British grown leaf to eat. It's got to be the original thing that they'd eat. So there's a huge amount of, of proper gardening happening at, at the zoo. And I'm excited because um, they've just opened a huge aviary called the Latin American Aviary, which houses over 300 Caribbean flamingos. And um, it's one of the largest aviaries in Europe. So it's probably the size of a Tesco extra shopping centre and car park. And so you can Gosh. walk through this aviary and it's so big that these flamingos can fly so they don't have to be wow. wind clipped. And they designed it to look like a mangrove in, in the Caribbean. So I'm looking forward to going back to Chester Zoo, hopefully with Zoe and Amanda or you and Caroline. I would love that. That's definitely And a taste the, the Chester Zoo gin, which is very good if anyone's looking for a present. How wonderful. <laughs> How wonderful. But yeah, that's, I'm looking forward to going to Chester Zoo. I, I, I long to do all of those things. Now we're allowed to travel a bit more. And I'm certainly putting them in my diary. How exciting. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. We are going to talk next week about two families mainly of perennials that are so fantastic and rather crazy at this time of year, which are lupins and bearded iris. So see you then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.